Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers. I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we take turns picking albums to discuss and review. One of us chooses an album from this calendar year, and the other chooses an album that's been around a while. All right, Trevor, I know this album is very important to you, one of your all-time favorites. Why don't you share with the listeners what we're going to be reviewing today? This is 1998's How It Feels to Be Something On by Sunny Day Real Estate. glad you picked this album. This is a a band that, for whatever reason, I did not get exposed to growing up. I'm a little disappointed because I think I would have really enjoyed it back then, but nonetheless, you've shared it with me now, and and I'm glad uh, you did because I I really like it. It it took a while, I I think, I mean, on first listen, but the more I listen to it, the more I like it, and, and the more I find little tidbits that I didn't catch the first or second time around, kind of like a good movie. By the end of it, it sort of leaves you scratching your head like, you know, that was that was good, but I, I sort of don't get this. And maybe I got to go back and rewatch it. And each time you find something and, and uh, you appreciate it more and more. Yeah, it's definitely one that grows on you. You said it really well when we did our interview episode with William and Greg that it's not an album that you put on to work out to or have in the background at a party right, or something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and William was even describing it as almost hard to listen to at, at times. It's not quite as heavy and dark to me, maybe, as it is to him, but I agree with you that it's certainly not something that you put on while you're working out. It's a dense album. There's there's a lot of layers to it. I think that's why I like it, and I can think of my 15 or 16-year-old self that first discovered this album and just being really into that element of it. But, you know, you're a couple years younger than me, and so coupled with the fact that you're not a Seattle guy, and I <laughs> am, and... Although they've had far-reaching influences beyond Seattle, they weren't a band that you were going to hear on the radio or really even see on MTV during that time. Most of their legacy existed after they after they didn't. In some ways, I'm a little young for Sunny Day, at least experiencing them when they were starting as well, because their first couple albums were in the early 90s, just on the tail end of that Seattle scene with the grunge music. In fact, I think Kurt Cobain had just committed suicide like a month before their first album was released, and they were on the same record label as Nirvana's Bleach album in Sub Pop. And I didn't get into them until this album. Their first album, Diary, is probably the one that people think of when they think of Sunny Day Real Estate. 
But ultimately, I thought this might be a really fun one to do, and I'm glad this is the one we picked. This is this is my favorite Sunny Day album. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the slight age difference. Even though we're pretty close, maybe that two or three years apart makes a difference, or maybe it's it's regional. I do know that I, at some point, came upon the songs In Circles and Seven from Diary, which, yeah. which are two of their more popular tracks. I didn't know them well enough to associate them with the band and have that in my mind as a band that I know. And looking back, Diary was released in 1994. So in my defense, I was seven years old. And uh, in 98, when How It Feels To Be Something On was released, I would have been 11. So probably wasn't listening to music. I mean, at least I wasn't, I think by that age, exploring music and, and buying albums. I wasn't really getting into my, my music exploration days probably until more as a teenager and at that point it was it was the punk scene that was really big at the time and i i guess maybe i missed this era uh, when when these guys were putting this music out maybe it maybe it's also partly that their music this album in particular has gained notoriety over the years i mean is that is that a fair assessment that it's it's more popular today after 20 plus years have passed than it was when it first came out? Yeah, I don't know if popular is the right word as much as it is its influence is more apparent with time. Yeah, I guess I was thinking it's just more highly regarded today or or respected or thought about or brought up in conversation. Yeah, and I would say that's more true of probably their first album. I think Diary is really the one that had that influence. I think this is their best. Again, I might be biased, but... I think that in terms of a sound that spawned other sounds, music of Diary, for better or for worse, influencing a lot of bands that would then be under that umbrella of whatever that term emo implies. We'll get into it when we talk about the history, but this is a band that just had a hard time staying together, and they had already broken up and gotten back together again when they recorded this album. And by then, they had moved on to a little bit different sound, and maybe it didn't fit into that same scene that they had started at the time. So this one kind of stands alone. It certainly was very critically acclaimed, but maybe not one that you look back and see the tentacles of influence in some of the other bands that came later, like Diary and and LP2, the Pink Album, which was their second one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went back and listened to Diary after diving into how it feels to be something on. It's definitely a, a different sound. Yeah. In some ways, it would have been really fun to pick an album that I love like this one and have you as my co-host also know it and love it. But in retrospect, I think it's even more fun to expose you to an album that has meant this much to me for the first time. It was really fun for me to get text messages and questions from you after reading the lyrics and doing basically what I did when I was 15 or 16, (laughs) trying to figure out what was going on. Except you probably weren't drinking as much wine as I was that night I was listening to it. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not quite As 15 years old, I'd hope not. No, that was was a lot of fun. That was, I was uh, sitting on the deck, had my nice headphones and just going through. Uh, I'd been pretty busy and put off really diving into it but I knew our our review episode was coming up soon and and I decided just to sit down and and really uh, immerse myself in the music you know with lyrics in front going through the tracks a couple times pausing to try to digest the lyrics and the sounds and put it all together and and text you and ask you questions 
And uh, you had been sending me track by track analysis, one one track every every day or every other day. So I think when I went through it, I had the first five or six track analyses from you. So I already had your interpretation on those songs, which helped guide me through those. The others I didn't, so I was able to form my own initial impressions of it. And I think I picked up on a lot of the same themes that uh, you have over the years listening to it and maybe had a, a couple different takes as well. So it was really fun for us to go back and forth and talk about some of the abstract lyrics and ideas. Yeah, and you thought of it in some ways that I hadn't before. Even having listened to it so many times, a lot of my initial interpretations were formulated when I was a kid and Mm -hmm. continue to this day. So to have a fresh set of ears as somebody in their 30s listening to this album for the first time made me think of it in a different way. Yeah, sure. And like we talked about with William and Greg, these lyrics could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, And I was surprised to hear William mention on a couple songs that he couldn't really go into detail on that there's some that have some very specific and personal meaning that maybe we don't even quite realize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was fascinating. I, I I gathered that some some were were reminiscent of a, of a time or a place or an event or something that would maybe be uh, too difficult for him to to talk about. But then I, then I also gathered that some of the inability to or the reluctance to share some of the details was was out of respect for some of the other band members as well. So it sounded like a lot of the songs were either personally tied to uh, a single band member or or, or a couple or. Or some of them to the entire band together. Will, William talked a lot about how the, the the band really became a cohesive unit, and they were expressing themselves through music, almost almost like an out of body experience or, or some outside force that was in control. That they were a part of this this whole process. But and I guess that's probably another uh, extension of that difficulty in trying to talk about the lyrics and i think william mentioned uh something in reference to this as well that that some of them are really difficult to recount because there there was some outside force something something spiritual in nature about about the whole experience that that it's not super vivid or clear that the details might not totally be there to try to fully explain so a combination of all that stuff um which probably is a, a good hint at why the the lyrics are pretty deep and you know why why it can be kind of a dark album at times and maybe difficult to, to fully understand the messages let me get into a little history to set the tone for sunny day real estate their prior couple albums leading up to this one and then this album itself how it feels to be something on Sunny Day Real Estate was formed in Seattle in 1992 when guitarist Dan Horner met bassist Nate Mendel at UW, where they were housemates. So they started jamming together as two guys that appreciated the punk and hardcore scene, which wasn't particularly prevalent in Seattle at the time with Nirvana, and that movement was in full effect at the time that they were starting to play music together, and they were influenced a little bit different. They were more on the D.C. and East Coast punk and into the hardcore scene as their influences. And soon after this, drummer William Goldsmith would join the band. They would initially be called Empty Set, but changed their name several times before it became Sunny Day Real Estate. Their second name was called Chewbacca Kaboom, and then they were called One Day I Stopped Breathing before Sunny Day Real Estate. At the time that Nate and Dan recruited William to play drums, he was playing in three other bands. William talks about this in the interview episode with us. 
One of the bands was called Reason for Hate, which was another hardcore band of which Jeremy Enoch, who would later become Sunny Day Real Estate's lead singer, was a guitar player. William was also in a band with Greg Williamson, whom we interviewed. That band was called Positive Greed. Nate and Dan approached William to be in the band and basically let him know that he would need to narrow his focus and dedicate himself to what they were starting if he was going to be a part of this band. When we did our interview with Greg and William, I asked them if there was any animosity over that moment. And Greg really graciously said, William, you know, you already know what's going on with our band, so maybe try this new thing out, which I thought was pretty gracious, a, a good friend. Yeah, he, se- he seemed really genuine about that, too. I was, I was surprised. Yeah, I found yeah. that really interesting. I, when I asked that question, I thought I was going to get some juicy story of them <laughs> right. at each other's throats yeah, for a while, yeah. but Greg seems like a really, really easygoing guy. Yeah, I he, was just going to say that. What? Understanding. So with this initial iteration, Dan Horner would sing vocals, and it was definitely more of what you'd expect if you were listening to a harder rock sound. You can hear Dan's vocals featured complimenting Jeremy's on their earlier work, especially their first album, Diary. So it does retain a little bit more of that hardcore component. William Goldsmith would periodically insist that they invite his high school friend and former bandmate in Reason for Hate, Jeremy Enoch, to play with them, as William knew that Jeremy was a prolific songwriter and a unique singer. But Jeremy was a couple years younger than the rest of them, and Dan and Nate felt the band was pretty much set, so they always refused to bring on a fourth member. The band quickly wrote over 40 songs and were creating music so fast they weren't even bothering to take the time to give the songs proper names. They were just referring to them by their numbers. When Nate was out of town, William convinced Dan to let Jeremy play with them as a side project, and they started writing songs with Jeremy singing lead and Dan singing backup. Despite Nate and Dan's objections throughout William's requesting, it was clear when Nate returned and heard what they'd been working on that this was definitely the new sound. And I mentioned that they went through several band names before settling on Sunny Day Real Estate. I knew the concept behind the term Sunny Day Real Estate before our interview, but I didn't realize it had ties to a song on the Talking Heads album, Naked. I did some research after we did that episode. I'm pretty confident I know what song off of that album inspired the band name Sunny Day Real Estate. There's a song on that album called Nothing But The Flowers, And there's a line in it that says, This used to be real estate, now it's only fields and trees. In our interview episode, William also mentioned that there was a letter by Chief Seattle, where Chief Seattle said, How can you buy and sell the sky, the warmth of the land? The idea is strange to us. We do not own the freshness of the air or the sparkle of the water. How can you buy them? Those words that are often attributed to Chief Seattle were actually written by a guy named Ted Perry, who is a screenwriter in 1972 for a film called home about ecology yeah you sent me that that was that was really fascinating to read through that but nonetheless that's often attributed to chief seattle and that inspired the band further to call themselves sunny day real estate so that's how they got that name as we mentioned their debut album diary is made up of a mix of songs that were written before and after jeremy joined though they changed shape and took a different form after Jeremy's influence. In fact, throughout their first two records, you find many songs titled just numbers, as we discussed, because they had written dozens of songs before Jeremy. They just titled in order, basically. But they started over again with Jeremy. So there's a song on Diary called Seven, which is a seventh song written with Jeremy. 
But there's also a song called 47 on Diary, which presumably is the 47th song that they had written together. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that exactly, but nonetheless, that's where all the numbers that you see in the titles of Sunny Day tracks come from. They were signed to Sub Pop and in May of 94 released their first album, Diary. We discussed exactly how this happened with William and Greg on our companion episode, so be sure to check that out. But this was a huge breakthrough for the guys who, as we discussed in that episode, never really set out to do anything except make music that they enjoyed. And Sub Pop was very influential at the time. It was a label that house bands from Seattle like Nirvana and many others that at one point released an album on Sub Pop. In fact, Kurt Cobain had just committed suicide about a month before the release of Diary, so eyes were still on Seattle as a place where this music movement was alive and well, even if Sunny Day Real Estate's sound differed a little bit from the rest of the bands coming out at that time. Reviews and exposure were strong for Diary, and they toured the rest of 94 and started working on a new album, but in early 1995, they broke up for the first of what would become Many Times. The reason for the breakup are hard to fully know, but included interpersonal struggles as well as Jeremy Enoch finding Christianity and penning an open letter to their fans on their website about how he wanted to dedicate his life and music to reflect this change in his life. Their second album, which doesn't technically have a name and is commonly just referred to as LP2 or the Pink Album because of its solid colored pink jacket, was released after their breakup also on Sub Pop in November of 1995, but the band was technically broken up as they were finishing it. After the breakup, Jeremy Enoch released the amazing solo album Return of the Frog Queen, which was also produced by Greg Williamson in 1996. Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith are invited to join a little band called the Foo Fighters during that time. And Sunny Day Real Estate had gained a lot of infamy after they had broken up. So in 1997, Sub Pop asked them to put together any recordings that they might still have laying around for a rarities release. Throughout this process, the band felt that some of these songs were lacking, and they discussed the idea of re-recording them, but ultimately this conversation moved into the direction of just creating a new album entirely, and they put their differences aside, and that's when they started working on what would become this album, How It Feels to Be Something On. I thought it was really interesting in our interview episode, William mentioned that Greg's encouragement was a really big part of what convinced them to do this and get back together to create this album. So this is the album we're discussing today, How It Feels to Be Something On. It's also on Sub Pop Records. This album would not include bassist Nate Mendel, who would remain busy with Foo Fighters. By this time, William Goldsmith had left the Foo Fighters. You can hear William's recounting of their inability to get Nate on this album in our interview episode. At the time, that was a little bit contentious. William basically said... They just waited and waited for Nate to call for them to start this album together. And finally, when he did, they were so far down the process of creating it that they basically just said, you're not you're not going to be a part of it. And they hung up on him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't he, he say uh, something like Nate? Nate said, hey, are we going to make this album or, or what? And Yeah. William said he answered the phone and just said, not with you. And then hung up. As contentious as that might have been at the time, we have to at least give Nate credit for coming back. He was on a future release. So instead, they recruited Jeff Palmer of the Mommy Heads, who would step in and play bass on the recording of the album. He would then be replaced by the late Joe Skyward of the Posies when they would go out on tour. 
William and Greg mentioned how Joe learned like 19 songs leading up to touring for this album, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, incredible. The band subsequently left Sub Pop the conclusion of their contract and decided not to renew their contract over a dispute about the release of a live video. They signed to a BMG subsidiary called Time Bomb Recordings to release their fourth album, which was called The Rising Tide. After the release, Time Bomb went bankrupt, so promotion was basically nothing for that album. And if you want to hear more details about that, we also talk about that with Greg and William on our interview episode. But all the work they put into making that album that really just didn't take off. So after the Time Bomb fiasco, Sunday Day broke up again. Dan Horner went on to work with Chris Caraba of Dashboard Confessional fame. Jeremy William and now the addition of Nate Mendel again who was still in Foo Fighters, reformed as The Fire Theft, which was basically Sunny Day Real Estate with a different name. And if you listen to the sound, it's similar to The Rising Tide, so it's just sort of a shuffling of the Sunny Day Real Estate members' deck. And then in 2003, that self-titled Fire Theft album was released. Fire Theft didn't officially break up, but Nate toured extensively with the Foo Fighters, and Jeremy recorded another soul album that was called World Waits, Greg Williamson also produced that one. And they kind of just went their separate ways. But then in 2009, rumors of a reunion began. And sure enough, they embarked on an extensive tour that year with all four original members, mostly playing songs from those first two albums that featured all four members. That's when you got to see them, I got to see them on this tour. And I was so excited because I was such a big fan right when I found out they had basically broken up and I didn't think I was ever going to see them again. It wasn't clear at the time, though, if they were going to put out an album with this tour. They had written some music and about half an album. But then in 2010, Dan Horner indicated that the new material was being written, but nothing had surfaced. Rumor had it there were five or six songs that just fell apart, and the band was trying to make it work. William said these were basically done without vocals, and he thought that they were going to be the best of all Sunny Day Real Estate albums, which makes me very sad. So, if you're keeping track, they basically released five albums, if you include the fire theft, and they broke up three or four times, depending on how you count it. Half the members were in another band, a pretty high-caliber band known as the Foo Fighters, as well as the name change and three different record labels, including disputes with one and a horribly timed bankruptcy of the other, not to mention the lead singer going through a bunch of spiritual awakenings and doing solo work in the middle of it. Speaking about this album specifically, as we mentioned, it was released in 1998. It was in September. How It Feels to Be Something On was a huge departure in sound from Diary and LP2, moving away from the alternative rock and hardcore root sound into more of a prog rock sound in the vein of maybe early Genesis or Yes. And it was really cool to talk to William about the making of this album, as he said that even though it sounds very different from the first two, They approached it basically the same way. It was just an authentic reflection of who they were at the time and where they had grown as a band. This album, like the rest, features Jeremy Enoch on lead vocals, rhythm guitar, and keys. Dan Horner's on lead guitar and backing vocals. We mentioned Jeff Palmer as the studio bassist, and then the late Joe Skyward would be the touring bassist, as Nate Mendel was absent for this album. And then William Goldsmith is on drums and produced by Greg Williamson. The artwork is by a local artist and tattooer named Chris Thompson, who also did the artwork for Diary. 
He's known for taking the tradition of historical portrait work and filtering it through a gritty, emotion-driven lens. Thompson actually lived with the guys from Sunny Day Real Estate while he was studying art at Cornish College of the Arts, and the Little People paintings for the Diary album that was created was actually for his senior year class thesis. How It Feels to Be Something On also shows a maturing of his art. It features a large sunburst-style cover with no title or reference to the band name on the front of the booklet, and it's full of abstract art and the lyrics inside. Jeremy Enoch also has a tattoo of the cover of this album on the front of his forearm. The album flew under the radar compared to the first two. It peaked at number 132 on the U.S. Billboard 200 charts. But the vinyl reissue in 2016 peaked at number 7 on the U.S. Billboard Vinyl Albums charts. So just showing that, once again, Sunny Day Real Estate's influence was more prevalent after they weren't a band anymore than maybe while they were making music. On a personal level, this is my favorite of the Sunny Day Real Estate albums, and it's probably in the top 10 of albums of all time for me. And I think it's a combination for me of the time that I heard it, where I was living there in Seattle, or close to Seattle, the age I was at the time and, and what I was doing. At the time, I was living in a smaller town in Washington called Yakima, and I was playing in my own little garage band. I must have been 15 or 16 when I picked up this album, and it was my entry point into Sunny Day Real Estate. Before this album, I was only aware of what was on the radio or MTV, so that Seattle scene, I was aware of it, but I was more on the outside looking in, both in my age and location. I was a little bit too young for it, and I was just a few hours away in Yakima. I would have been only 10 when Diary came out, and 14 when How It Feels To Be Something On came out, so it took me a year or two to discover this album, even after it was released. Nonetheless, when I did finally hear this album, it was like nothing I had never heard before. There wasn't any sheen on this like a Third Eye Blind or a Semisonic album that would be other albums that I would have been listened to probably at this time. It just felt like pure emotion and real art to me. The shows were accessible, and to me it just felt like everything that music was supposed to be and the art was supposed to be, and really something that I didn't even know was possible. Yeah, once again, I'm really glad you picked this album. As I mentioned earlier, this is not a band that was in my musical background or really connected to my teen years. So for me, it was a fun experience to be exposed to a band and and a particular album that is so meaningful to you because it gave me a little extra reason to, to really dive into it to try to get up to your level to some degree to kind of to kind of catch up to understand the significance and uh, do it justice out of out of respect for your long-term fanhood of them so without further ado let's get into it track one is titled pillars So that was Pillars. It's one of my favorite songs on this album. When we talked to Greg Williamson, he mentioned that he wanted to start this album out with that feedback because he wanted to hearken back to what fans would remember from those first two albums and and maybe wipe the slate clean of all the tumultuous stuff that happened and the breakup that the band went through. And just to hear that feedback come in and remind fans of what Sunny Day is all about, he said that was one of the things that he was proud of in his production on this album. 
Yeah, those sounds really grab my attention right away. I really like that that bass guitar line as well to, to start it out. It, it kind of makes you feel like you're you're walking down this this dark alley, hidden hidden secret path or something. One of the things that stood out to me about this song is when you first hear this song, you think you've got the verse and the chorus. When they get to that, don't tell me you've gone astray, I've walked in circles. I, I thought that was the chorus when I heard it the first time. don't realize that they had another part to this song. It starts into that total anxiety, pay for variety is really the chorus part. And that part is not in the first part with the verse in that AB format. So it surprised me when that part came right. out. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't say that I recall any music from my past that sounds like this vocally. I think it's it's uh, pretty unique. The music, the instrumental part, I think I've heard in a lot of other music, but there's something really unique about Jeremy's voice and the way the vocals are put together. I don't I don't know if you can really compare it to much. Maybe a blend of some sounds that I've heard on some bands labeled as emo and some of that grunge post-grunge progressive rock but a combination of of all that I, I don't know if i could really say oh if you, if you like this band or that band then then you'll really like sunny day real estate or like if you like sunny day real estate you should check out these guys you know i'm not i'm not really sure if there's a great comparison vocally or like complete package he does have a really unique vocal delivery and it sounds a lot different on this one than the first two it's a little more polished little less rough around the edges, but he still conveys that emotion and gets to those high notes. William had mentioned Jeremy is like an instrument in our interview episode, and he was talking about it more just like he's almost like more like a vessel for all this emotion and the words and all these things. But I always thought of his voice literally as an instrument. It just it doesn't sound like a human to me in some points. I, I think the the term that I texted you when I was talking about his vocal stylings, it's, it's kind of alien is what I think of when I hear his <laughs> voice. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't sound like it would naturally happen. I mean, there's there's an art form to the way he's, he's manipulating his voice to, to make it sound that way. But it cert certainly sounds like he's worked on that over the years he's tuned that instrument to sound a certain way to really perfect that uh, vocal quality that he has about it yeah and i think that's one of the things i like about this album maybe more so even than the first two is that i feel like he's come into his own some his voice changes even from this one to some of their other ones but a lot of that's more on the production side i think this is where i feel like he's really settled into the way that he sings now you know, he's aged and matured, but this sounds like Jeremy to me, whereas those first two, it's a little bit different, even though I love his vocals on the first two. This, to me, sounds like what he'll continue to sing like as he goes into his solo work and, and future Sunny Day albums. I'm curious to hear what you thought of the lyrics. As we discussed before, 
they're hard to make heads or tails of. They're not spelled out really clearly for you. But I get the impression that this is of somebody that's stuck. It's somebody that's maybe feeling some complacency or stuck in the same place. And it feels like maybe there's another story wrapped up in that. But the overall theme of this to me feels like somebody that's stuck walking in circles, essentially. Yeah, especially in the pre-chorus where he says, don't tell me you've gone astray. I walk in circles. I've seen a million things that tell me so. I gather or imagine two people having a conversation and somebody's talking about how they've gone astray, they're lost, they can't figure something out, et cetera, et cetera. And the other person is saying, you know, don't, don't tell me that's the case. I walk in circles. I've, I've seen a million things that tell me so that that's not the case, that you haven't gone astray. You're just maybe stuck in a rut and, and you're going in circles too. And then in the chorus, oh, it talks about total anxiety, pay for variety. We'll wait for time to turn around, turn around your faith. We'll wait for time. Again, as you mentioned, the complacency, feeling stuck, feeling anxious, but in time, things can turn around. You can turn around your faith. There's something about somebody feeling stuck, but the other person relating to that and also maybe giving some advice or trying to shed some some light, some positivity on the whole situation that maybe it's not as big as this person is making it and, and in time things can't turn around. But maybe that's just me interpreting it based on my own experiences in life and putting some sort of spin on it that means something to me. That's something really interesting that came up in our interview with Greg and William, where William had said on a couple of different occasions that this album is fairly dark uh, to him and that the lyrics are really deep and personal uh, to him and to the band members and to the time to the era that that they were putting this together and that some of the meanings behind it he can't even talk about well a lot of those we may never know but as listeners we're able to take those words the lyrics the song and put our own meaning to it and it doesn't necessarily have to mesh with what the band was trying to tell especially in music that sunny day real estate puts out that's somewhat abstract in a number of the songs i think we we oftentimes will interpret song lyrics based on our own experiences and 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 our own perception you know basically perception is your reality and oftentimes i think i find myself interpreting the lyrics to fit my story I think that's a cool thing about art. I think that's what you can do, insert yourself in one way or another. And this band and this album particularly, I think, lends itself to that. On this song specifically, to me, it feels like it's a story of two people that are stuck together, perhaps. They're in a place where they don't really know how to move forward or move backward. Lines like, I know we could fall in there for a time and then unfall again, to me, sounds like people that don't really have their relationship well-defined. And so when they're together, maybe they can fall together and, and have what feels like a relationship and then unfall again. Or when you step away from it, it, it doesn't really mean as much as it felt like it did in the moment. And so that's the specifics to me of this with these two people. It's the first time he uses the word girl in a song. So it makes me think maybe there's a relationship to that or the only time he uses the word girl in a song on this album. But then I think even bigger than that, there's just this overarching feeling of the narrator being stuck. And it's cemented for me when it gets to the chorus at the end, things like everlasting chains that bind my purpose, somebody maybe that's wallowing in complacency. I love that line, choked on society, laced with cyanide. It's like you're drinking what society is giving you and not realizing that it's poisonous at the same time. Yeah. 
and then just that will wait for time to turn around to me sounds like somebody that's not in control of that it's not i'm gonna pull myself up out of this and turn around my fate or turn around my faith it's i'm just gonna sit around and wait for it to change itself so it feels like somebody that's just stuck not knowing how to move forward it's a good opening track it's worth noting in the midst of an album that's got pretty cryptic lyrics in it every once in a while jeremy's gonna throw in made-up words that really just don't mean anything at all when he says for a while i give you darium bound stones grow through the roots of your mind set apart i have no idea what a darium bound stone is me neither or if jeremy had any meaning assigned to that himself but it's not in the dictionary let's put it that way i think that's maybe where william was talking about it's almost like a a spiritual being or something like using jeremy as a a vessel to produce sounds yeah yeah Uh, I forget what he said exactly, but it was almost like his 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 voice was was making noises, but like he wasn't consciously doing it, or at least that's like the the way William remembers it. Um, you know, granted, granted, it was so many years ago. It was his but soul singing. He said he he meant them. He really meant them, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like and and almost almost like an extension of of the band. Yeah, that uh, his voice was the medium that that expressed the feelings of the band there was something bigger that was driving that we mentioned it in our interview episode but i really love the drum and bass interplay on this song leading up to the bridge Yeah, the the way the way William uh, and and Jeff play the the drums and bass guitar there together is is really cool. I mean, you can tell they got a a great great rhythm, good connection. I think one of the reasons this is one of my favorite songs on the album is it just continues to surprise me as you go. I mentioned that I thought the pre-chorus was the chorus, and then by the time they get to the last chorus of the song, they repeat it twice. And so we already have the total anxiety pay for variety part and they finish off the chorus with the wait for time too. But instead of finishing that line, it goes to that choked in society laced with cyanide. So you get like a double dose of a chorus at the end. funny you mentioned the pre-chorus versus the chorus or the a b design of the song when i think about this song what sticks in my head is that pre-chorus part that don't tell me you've gone astray i walk in circles i've seen million things that tell me so that's the section that's really catchy that i find myself repeating in my head so that to me feels like a chorus but you know it's a song it's music we have to put labels on different parts like verses and pre-chorus and chorus and this and that and whatever but you know it's kind of i don't know it's it's not real clear like a lot of songs where there is this repetitious super catchy part makes it a little more unique and i like when he gets to the actual chorus the the words total anxiety pay for variety it's a little bit faster so it almost feels like it's got a little bit of an anxiety pushing it at that point it's like he has to stuff those words in there a little bit faster yeah, that's something we see a lot 
throughout the entire album where the music tells the same story as the lyrics. And if, if you were to listen to an instrumental track, it would probably give you the same vibe as listening to the full song with words. And I think that's, in my opinion, a sign of a, a really good song where where the band members are really jiving and the lyrics and the sounds all mesh together to, to tell the same story or give the same message or feeling uh, to the listener. Yeah, I think that's well said. I agree. Well, should we go on to track two? Yeah, let's take a listen. This one is titled Roses in Water. This song's pretty cool. You mentioned to me that it is named after Rosewater Ice Cream, which is ice cream that uh, some of the band members would get from this Afghan restaurant in Seattle. Although the song itself has nothing to do with ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a clever title. I really like it. I, I thought it had some unique elements. We hear more of Jeremy's array of talents with the the ho ho hos and hums in yeah, the background. I love that That's kind of unique. Yeah, yeah, it's really chant like, um, almost tribal sounding. Yeah, and despite this being at least on the surface level a silly song that was inspired by an ice cream flavor, the lyrics go a little bit deeper. My impression of lyrics are basically it's a connection between life and eternity, something fragile and something permanent. The rose in water is delicate, and maybe wise men see that that existed forever in one form or another. You know, rose is going to bloom and die and go into the soil and bloom again. The song says for centuries, but to contrast that, he keeps mentioning this wave that comes. He says... It says an endless wave, strange. So I, I picture that being something that is really powerful and can come and destroy that version of the rose that's in front of you in the moment. But at the end of the day, they're both the same. It's the powerful and the delicate elements that are all part of the earth recycling itself over and over again for centuries, as the song says. And that may be completely my own interpretation of it, but that's what I get out of this song when I read the words. I think that's a good interpretation. I, I couldn't up with anything any better than that when we asked greg what touch on this album he was really proud of he immediately talked about this song saying that i think his words are this is sonically his favorite song that he's ever been a part of producing which i think is saying a lot with all the production that he's done and also he mentioned having very sensitive ears to begin with i was listening to an interview with him actually where he was saying that he got into the production side of things because he was always the guy that would go to a party and mess with the stereo and change the settings because he would describe it as it just hurt his ears the way it was before. Everybody else would come in and be like, oh, what'd you do? It sounds so much better. And he's like, I don't know. It was just uncomfortable for me to listen to it the way it was coming through the speakers, how you had it. And so he realized his ears were very sensitive. But for him to say sonically, this song stands out as his favorite that he ever made, I think is saying a lot. And I'd have to agree that sonically this song is just really, really well done. I love the way that Dan's guitar plays in this song, that little guitar picking at the beginning. 
And then after verse two in the chorus, when he says to walk with me an endless wave, strange, like you mentioned before, the guitar almost sounds like a wave in that section. Hmm. We hear that distortion that started the first song, Pillars, die off in the right speaker just before this song picks it up again and then Dan's guitar in the other channel. And Greg makes mention of that as well from a production standpoint. So these songs, track one and track two, feed into each other and are connected by that same distortion that started the album to begin with. William's drumming on the outro to the song too. I think it's really, really amazing. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The the way it blends with the guitar and and the cymbals clashing, it, it's just really, really cool. It's it's like fast pace, but uh, there's kind of like this pullback where it's, it's it's dragging or lingering a little bit, but in a good way. outro to this song too again contrasting the ab format that we see on the first two albums this more progressive rock sound has all these different stop starts and these different parts of the song that come together like a puzzle piece and so that outro on first listen you wouldn't think it really fits with the rest of the verse chorus of this song but adds a really cool ending to this song and then we hear jeremy doing his wailing at the end of this as it fades out I really like your interpretation of the overall meaning behind this song. I'm curious where you where you derived uh, from that, or like what made you think about the connection to the earth being powerful and being able to sustain great forces, but also being fragile. Where, where did you make that connection? This song's really open for interpretation, so by no means do I think mine is the correct reading of this song, but just that contrast with the rose and water, it feels very delicate. And then on the chorus, it says an endless wave. And that the contrast of those two things reminded me of something delicate and then something powerful. But then the line that says, wise men see, to me, it was like, if you really think about it, they're both parts of the same thing. They're both part of the earth that's just going to recycle itself. If you think about waves, it's like it's almost like the earth breathing or something. It's just going back and forth and it's doing slow change over time, but it's very, very powerful. And things like flowers like roses those are parts of the earth that get recycled throughout that process and it's part of just that living breathing element of what is what is our earth um and that's just the feeling that i got from the song roses and water and then that endless wave being all part of the same thing i do like that that idea uh kind of earth being this extremely powerful being that in the short term seems very resilient, able to handle a lot of forces. But in the long term, you can look back and say that it's it's somewhat fragile or susceptible to changes. Like you think about the formation of the Grand Canyon over time, that was essentially erosion from water. 
just slowly whittling away at it. And you see something like that and you think, man, all that rock just wore away, but it was over a really long period of time. If that happened quickly, you'd say things were kind of fragile, but it takes a really long time for those things to happen. So that's a true sign of how strong it is, despite the fact that it's still being manipulated by outside forces, by, by weather. The contrast between roses, which are light and delicate, and uh, waves, which are powerful, I can definitely definitely see that. Yeah, it says wise men see move around before centuries. So tying in a little bit to what you said about how the Grand Canyon, you know, maybe it took centuries to look the way it did, but wise men can see that that's all related. Chorus where it says an endless wave, and then it says strange. You know, it, it reminds me of somebody that's just thinking about that, going, oh, that's really strange and interesting to think about how, you know, I, I picture somebody sitting on a, at a table, like a, at a dinner table or something, and seeing a rose in a vase in water and how we've pulled it out of the earth and stuck it here as this pretty representation of the earth and life. But it's so temporary, like it's going to get thrown out at the same time they wash the tablecloths that night. And then thinking about how it's recycled and blooms again at some point when it becomes the dirt again someday. You think there's any significance in the contrast between roses and water and, and roses and wine? Are we supposed to derive some sort of meaning from that part? Because I could look at that as an endless wave of roses in water and then roses in wine. They're in water and wise men see later on will follow love and then they're in wine. And now we're seeing strange ways to walk with me as this endless wave that's this strange transition of roses being in water and then in wine and, and that contrast. Like if you weren't thinking about the earth's forces and you just simply looked at that word wave as a pattern or a flow of one thing to the next. It makes me more curious about the significance what roses in water versus wine was trying to tell us there. Yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't unpacked the difference between roses and water, and frankly, I forgot that there was a line in there that says roses and wine because I always misheard that. I always thought he was saying roses in mine eyes instead of in wine for some reason. And you pointed out that it was it was wine. Oh, and I had to look up the lyrics right, and go, yeah. "Oh yeah, it is wine." So I had never <laughs> contemplated a contrast between those two things. And I, I don't I don't have an answer. Just something I've been thinking about. But from a literal standpoint, if a rose is suspended in a glass of water, then you'd be able to see it. And that line that follows that says, "Wise men see." But then the roses are in wine. Well, wine is the color of a rose. So you wouldn't really be able to see the rose if it's suspended in wine. If we were to throw a rose into a, a bottle of wine, it would just sort of blend in. It would be kind of murky. You might see an outline, but you wouldn't actually see the rose. And following that, he says, I can see strange ways. So I don't know if he's seeing strange because he's drinking the wine or, <laughs> or if it's just saying like, you know, sometimes the rose is really clear. It's in water and wise men can see it. But then other times we're seeing things that are kind of strange and it's in wine and it's not as clear and that maybe there's this endless wave between things that are clear and things that don't really make sense and i mean i guess that could go hand in hand with the contrast of the earth being powerful yet at the same time very fragile depending on how you look at it yeah i like that interpretation and it made me think too of wine represents you know not maybe not that the narrator's literally sitting there drinking the wine, but it could represent something that might just cloud those times that you have the clarity where if you're 
a wise man, you're seeing the rose very clearly through water, but wine, love, things that might distract you maybe makes it a little bit harder to see those comparisons. Yeah, yeah, perhaps maybe it's a little poke at people who think they know it all. You know, I mean, they, they can see the obvious. They can see the rose in the water, and that's cool, good for you. You think you're wise, but my rose is in wine, and I can see strange ways. I, I kind of see the world differently than you do. Yeah, I can't wait to share this episode with William and Greg and have them just come back going, what the hell are you guys talking about? Yeah, right. It was ice yeah, cream. Like, what were you What were you on when you recorded that podcast? Hey, this is our podcast. We do it the way we want. Yeah. But no, that's fun. I, I, I think that there's something to that. And once again, I think this is open for interpretation. And it may be that they don't know for sure what it's about either. It's words that were coming out at the time that maybe meant something, but weren't fully fleshed out even in their minds at the time they wrote it. I think we didn't we didn't uh, explicitly say it, but in our interview episode, we talked about how, particularly on the first two albums, but on this one as well, they would all get together and just sound out the words, essentially. So when they were building the songs, William mentioned that the melody was the most important part. So Jeremy would sing some words, some sounds. Maybe that's how words like darium came to play it was just a sound that he made that they really didn't find a better word for and they they kept that made up word in there but after they would play the melody and Jeremy would sing whatever sounds or words came to his mind they would come in and reinterpret them together and say oh this sounds like you're saying this what if you said that then it starts becoming this disjointed poem that sometimes took on greater meaning than they ever thought it would because all of them were sitting together unpacking these these sounds i think some of these songs have somewhat of a meaning fleshed out and then that part that's not so fleshed out is what's open for interpretation like we're doing here and you can insert meaning where you find it yeah that's a good point and if the focus was more on the melody if they got that if they checked that off and said okay we like the sound everything's jiving well the lyrics are pretty good and our meaning is wrapped up in there if it if it wasn't perfectly polished like a poem that's been reworked 17 times they probably wouldn't care because they already accomplished their goal. It's complete to them. It's a it's a song, and they move on from it because, like that, like they mentioned in in the interview, they weren't really making this music for anybody else. You know, for any any particular reason. You know, there there weren't conditions placed on the the sound that they had to produce. They weren't trying to impress a certain group of people or, or go a certain direction. Or, or really try to make it anything more than, than what it organically came to be. They were just a bunch of guys making music, playing music. And because of that, maybe some of the lyrics weren't totally complete. That wasn't really the goal. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that was the goal. Maybe they wanted it to be more abstract and left up for interpretation, that they didn't want it to be super neat and polished. Yeah. Which I, I kind of like. I think that's cool. I think it gives it a... A really unique element for people like us who who like trying to figure figure this stuff out and find meaning it gives you lots of different ways to interpret it which is it's kind of cool because then it can speak to a lot of people it's not just specifically giving one message across yeah i, I think that you're, you're dead on with that interpretation i think they would probably agree with what you're saying there it's 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 complete the way it is even if it's not spelled out completely yeah yeah, well said. I think that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we go on to track three? Yeah, 
This is a good one. Track three is called Every Shining Time You Arrive. Definitely another great song. This this one kind of changes the pace a little bit. It, it's, it's a little lighter sounding. I think it fits well uh, for track three. Um, the first two were a, l- a little more edgy, somewhat dark, if you will. Um, so this is kind of a, a nice change of pace to throw that in there. Lyrically, it's 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 a beautiful song. I mentioned earlier that you, Trevor, were, were sending me your deep analysis track by track every so often every couple days leading up to our podcast here because the the songs are really meaningful to you and you said it brilliantly that that you think this song is about how everything feels meaningless at times but the presence of someone special can change everything in a moment and uh i think that's beautiful that's probably the best interpretation i could come up with for it that's what i felt like it was too you know some of the verses are about somebody maybe that's going through something hard but that outro after the build-up you know the song starts off pretty gentle and quiet and we were talking with william and greg about how this is the only song on the album where they played with the click track and they used pro tools this one keeps the same drum pace the whole time but it builds in other ways and by the time you get to that outro where he says, in the depths of my gloom, I crawl out to you. In the peaks of my joy, I crawl back into. Yeah, it feels like the presence of somebody that's important to him can pull him out of some of these hardships. In the verses he's talking about, shoulders straining with the endless toil. But then he goes on to say they were nothing more than a feather moving in the wind. So to me, that's somebody that's maybe going through something hard, but he's reminded that in the large scheme of things, it's nothing. It's just a feather flowing in the wind when you see that person that makes you smile when that person arrives and and changes your outlook on what's happening. See, I looked at lyrics like that and others like, Proceeding that where it says changing every little desire, we were counting on forces we could not control. So the story's told beyond our grasp. We were climbing forever an infinite task. Saying that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're fairly insignificant. We, we don't really have a lot of control. That line, we're nothing more than a feather moving in the wind. You know, I, I think of that as, as uh, a metaphor for us. Sometimes it kind of feels like we're, we're simply a feather blowing in the wind, that there's this bigger force that's moving us in different directions and that we really don't have as much power as we hope we would have or as much control over every little detail and situation. But that when you're with somebody and, and uh, you have that companion by your side, maybe you can forget about some of those things, put those aside and, and uh, rest a little more easy, feel a little more confident that at least you're in it together. In some ways, what we do from a day-to-day standpoint don't really matter, but then when you put it in the context of what does matter, people that care about you, 
you're reminded that that's really what endures beyond what's temporary and what's going on in our lives. It's, it's the connections we make with other people. And I feel an energy in the chorus when he says, I want to change everything. It feels like this is something that he feels like maybe that's a part that he can control or he wishes he could control. He wishes that he could make an impact on a world that in many ways he's just a small part of in a small part of time. But then he says, I want to blame everything on. And it, it doesn't finish that. It just kind of trails off. Yeah. Yeah. What did you make of that? I put in my notes... Uh, on what? <laughs> it wants to blame everything on what? <laughs> I'm not sure. I wonder if that's the point. I wonder if he's realizing, you know, in the verses that he's just a, a feather moving in the wind, essentially, that, that there's nothing permanent about his life. And then in the chorus, he says, I want to change everything. He's realizing that he can't do that. No one of us can. So just blame, blame it on everything else. like. Yeah. And then so then his last line is, I, I want to blame everything on, but there really isn't an answer for that. Yeah. Doesn't want to blame it on himself, like for not being able to control it because... Like he's realizing that maybe he just can't, so he wants to blame it on whatever that whatever that force is, whatever's happening that he can't fully describe. Yeah, I, I wonder if that's the point, is just him saying, him leaving that open because there is no answer to that. Nobody knows what to blame it on. Or there's some hesitation to complete that sentence and say who he wants to blame it on. Because in, in the song, when he sings it, it's, I don't know how many syllables or how many times he repeats that word, but it's it's like... I want to change everything, everything. I want to blame everything on, you know? Yeah. He just drags that on for a while, but doesn't actually say, I don't know, leave, leaves you thinking again. I, that's a common theme that we're going to come back to a lot with this album. There's a lot of songs. You've mentioned the, the term cryptic, and that's just one of the unique elements of this album. Yeah. Something you kind of have to accept, and that's... That's why this isn't one that you put on and listen to for the first time while you're working out or something. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you need to be focused and, and ready to accept it, ready to uh, listen to it and really dive in and, and let yourself get lost in the lyrics. And and maybe it means something totally different to you than it does to somebody else. And maybe it means something different to you when you listen to it the second or third time or depending on the context where you're at. It, it can impact you in a number of ways. Yeah, Cryptic is a word I've used a lot to describe these lyrics. I think another phrase I would use to describe these are maybe otherworldly or even, you know, in the context of his religious change from the second album, LP2, their breakup into this one, I would almost use the word scriptural to describe some of these lyrics. They, they feel like they were written from another time. It almost feels like something you'd find etched on a scroll somewhere or, you know, they're, they feel like they are ancient to me, some of the words to these songs. And there's some songs coming up that I think illustrate that even more. But as a theme throughout this album, it, it, the lyrics feel, they feel old to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can see that too. Kind of, I don't know, in a way like things are just unfamiliar to you where you're like, huh, that... I think I kind of know what they're talking about, but there's definitely some things missing. And, and I, I guess I had to be there to like really understand yeah. the context, you know, the meaning behind it. 
I wanted to mention on this song too, musically, I, I got a kick out of listening to William and Greg recount the story that William was forgetting when Greg brought up how he wanted to play drums on Jeremy's solo album. But Greg oh, yeah, was like, yeah. no, nah, dude, you just hit the shit out of the drums. You beat them too hard. <laughs> you, you don't finesse it. And yeah. William was so yeah. mad that it was on this song that they were going back and forth. And he was like, all right, this is a delicate yeah. song. You get one cymbal. You get one cymbal crash. You better make it count. <laughs> and so yeah. on the climax of this song, you can hear that cymbal crash just as Jeremy says, every shine time you arrive for the last time. William took that on as a, a challenge. Greg had, had mentioned in our interview that he and William had some words leading up to the recording of some of these songs. And William was like, I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't remember what. And, uh, that's when Greg started talking about how he, he encouraged him to, to play with a little bit more finesse and, and not to just hammer on the drums. Like he did some in the, the previous albums. And, uh, Greg said he was pleasantly surprised when William came out and just nailed all these songs just perfectly the way he would have wanted the sound to come out. It's kind of like, see, I can do this. I told you so, you know. <laughs> I was laughing so hard uh, during our like, yeah. interview episode Yeah, that was about cool. That. And then I think what's really neat about that whole interaction of, of a producer challenging a, a band member to play their instrument in a different way, somebody who's already very successful and very, very good so to already be really good at something and then for somebody to come to you and say, Hey, you know, what you're doing is really cool, but you think you can do it totally different. It's probably not the easiest to hear for somebody who's already really good at doing something. So to take that on as a challenge and say, okay, yeah, let me, let me see this is one thing. And for that to come together for that album, but then to take that one step further, William mentioned to us that he can't even go back and listen to the first two albums. He, he, he doesn't even like listening to the way he was playing the drums. He's like, Oh man, why did you, why did you do this on that section? What was I thinking? How come I didn't play this? Yeah. How come I didn't learn this sooner? So like he really came to take on that identity and, and the persona that, that Greg had kind of envisioned in, in him playing a little bit softer and more finessey. And now he accepts that too. Or I mean, he, he has taken that on himself to say that, he prefers playing that way too, you know, like, so just a really a big maturation process. And obviously we're talking about over 20 years ago, it's been a lot of time to reflect and think about that. But I, I just, I thought that was really cool to see them interact about that. And, uh, it just seemed like a real special connection, um, that they had in the making of the music that 22 years later, they can still talk about and smile and, and, uh, you can just see their eyes light up almost like a couple of high school buddies that haven't seen each other in a long time, getting back together and talking about some football story or, you know, just like reminiscing on that. It was really cool to see. Yeah. I think William used the phrase, a better sense of pocket in describing his progression in drums. Yeah. And that's yeah. again, one of the things that makes this album so right. special to me. I love all of Sunny Day's albums, but I talked about Jeremy's maturation and his vocal style, and here we're talking about William's maturation and his drum style, and I just think as a band, despite the fact that they didn't have Nate Mendel for this album, just really matured in their sound, and this is a really special album to me. And I think Greg Williamson's work on this was a huge part of that. 
I think I would be amiss not to mention that uh, during the time that I got really into Sunny Day Real Estate, my little garage band that got to open for Pedro the Lion there in my junior year of high school, we covered this song. And I'm very glad that whatever VHS tape that exists of this out there is not on the internet. <laughs> oh, man. Because... <laughs> is it still in existence, though? Somewhere buried somewhere there might be... I think I found a picture and texted you a picture of this concert. Yeah, I saw, I saw the photo. For, and we look kind of cool in the picture, as, as much as a 16-year-old can look cool. But <laughs> sound-wise, you know, maybe not. I'm not sure yeah. why I thought a 16-year-old going through puberty would be a really good voice to sing that really high falsetto, want to change everything part. But <laughs> What year would have that been from, uh, that photo you sent uh, me? So that would have been in, in 2000. So it would have been two oh, years okay. after was this gonna, album came out. I was going to say you look you look cool for the 90s. <laughs> I just missed the 90s. But just, just, just after yep, the 90s. Yep. 20 years ago. Yeah, wow. that's scary to sit think 20 years ago for sure. We got to get a sound clip of that. Maybe for this episode. Maybe one day I'll, I'll show that. it to you. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, this is a perfect time to move cool. on to the next song so we don't talk anymore about that concert. <laughs> next song is track 4. The song is called Two Promises. So on track four, Two Promises, this is the first time that, to me anyway, we're talking about a song that isn't quite so cryptic. The lyrics of this song are a little bit easier to flesh out and understand. Essentially, this is a song about somebody that is experiencing heartbreak and implies maybe that this person is hanging by his last thread. Long days, caught in his room, trapped in the gloom of the dying light. That dying light signifying the fading away of, of something good, something positive, uh, potentially also the, the sun setting, another day passing by, wrong way, mind in a haze, his mind in a rage. He thinks the time will be soon, as you, as you mentioned, potentially somebody, somebody struggling to find purpose and reason with the things that are happening in their life. And clearly, I mean, it, it sure sounds like it's about a, a relationship. I gave her my heart. She tasted my blood. Now she's gone again. The fact that uh, it says now she's gone again makes me think that maybe it's not the first time she's left, that maybe it's this on again, off again uh, relationship where he's getting his hopes up and then you know, she breaks his heart potentially and then she comes back and that maybe his emotions are being toyed with and he's finally reaching his brink at his last straw so to speak yeah and it also seems to imply that with that on again off again part that you mentioned that maybe he feels like he's the one that's always trying to keep it together he says on the chorus walls he's building keep on crumbling down as opposed to saying walls they built together keep on crumbling down it's it doesn't sound like they're both putting equal effort into perpetuating this relationship that maybe it feels at least to him that she's always got one foot out the door and yeah but for some reason he's still blaming himself in verse two it says long long days alone with his shame fanning the flames of desire 
despite the fact that it seems like she's she's the one who's left i mean it it even says his heart breaks as his memory plays images of her betrayal he's still blaming himself and feeling shameful and trying to put out the flames of desire of wanting to be with her convince himself that you know he should maybe just let her go but yeah it just seems like he's he's uh been out of shape broken up about it that you know something that he really wanted that's just not happening yeah and it gets really dark in verse three where he says long days he thinks the time will be soon pacing his room with his dark thoughts his heart breaks at the road he must take the road that will lead to the end wrong way he thinks it's time for release he'll never know peace in his lifetime to me it's sounding at that point that maybe he's thinking of maybe ending his life and escaping this in the yeah, only way that he knows he can yeah and hopefully hopefully i mean uh you know, if if it is uh, describing a a story, whether that be personal uh, or something that uh, the band knew about at the time, we've all either been there or known somebody who's who's been in a place where they're starting to feel like they're kind of hopeless and don't have the ability to sort through whatever's given them grief and trouble. That line in the the pre-chorus where he says, "Why did you leave me here? How could you lead me down here?" It's almost indirectly saying that, you know, he's in a place that's very down and feeling like she left him there, led him down to that place. So it could be that that somebody is going through typical breakup and overanalyzing the the situation or letting the the emotions get to them, letting the situation become bigger than it than it really is because when we're young and and immature, we don't really have the ability to fully grasp uh, the situation and and sometimes we misinterpret you know the overall significance of it Um, and sometimes that can lead people down the wrong path you know uh, emotionally mentally Um, but again like like a lot of the the songs uh, the the story doesn't really play out we're kind of left to interpret those lyrics and uh, just sort of envision what's going on, but we don't really get all the details, so it's hard to know exactly what's going on and how this played out, but certainly that that's a, a general message that seems to be coming through the words here. To complement the really dark lyrics in this song, Greg had mentioned that he wanted people to feel uneasy when they listened to it. And if the lyrics didn't do that enough, he used a technique where he would double Jeremy's vocals. And he does it on several songs here, but it stands out the most on this one during the verses where you've got Jeremy singing up an octave and then you can hear mixed in just a little bit lower down an octave to fill that out. And it does just what they intended it to do. It makes you feel uncomfortable just to listen to it. And right. back to what you described, where even if you didn't know what the lyrics were, if you just heard the sound of these songs, you know, if, if this was in another language, for instance, and you were listening to Jeremy's vocals doubled and the sound of this song, I think it would make you feel that same way, despite the words. Long days, caught in his room, trapped in the gloom of the Any idea what the, the two promises might be? I just pictured it being two lovers that made maybe promises to each other because there's a line that says okay, sure. two promises one imperfect 
So I pictured it. And he mentions how, how she betrayed yeah, him. So maybe yeah, exactly. one of them kept their promises and the other one did not. Right. Another thing I really like about this song is the outro where he just sings, there is no sound over and over again. I think that vocally that's one of my favorite parts for Jeremy on this song is just that, that really airy sound that he sings on the word sound. end it with saying there is no sound maybe this this character did commit suicide and and now there is no sound it's it's quiet that's the very dark version of this if that's what we're true to take from the prior lyrics about him pacing the floor and saying it's time for release he'll never know peace in this lifetime but very real something a lot of people go through unfortunately they they end up in that place and uh, if they feel alone or unable to tackle the the problems that they're being faced with sometimes it can be overwhelming yeah well anything else to add on that one before we move on to track five now let's go on to track five all right this one is titled 100 million to me I mentioned in our interview episode with William and Greg is kind of the title Sunny Day Real Estate in a nutshell. This song is talking about how you pay for everything in your life from the moment you're born to the moment you die. Words like pay for the sign on the hill that says you're home. So basically you pay for your house, pay for the hole in the ground to place your bones that you're paying for your coffin and your plot of land to put you in. And so basically like everything in between. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head. We pay for everything in life from very expensive things like in the one line, pay for the soles of your shoes to walk the streets of kings, pay for the simplest things, pay for the mood in your mind to give a thought disguised. So from from tangible things to intangibles like your thoughts, everything has a, a price. Yeah, the bridge probably fleshes that out better than anything else. It says 100 million fences around us so basically implying that you're trapped by those things that you own. And then he says, can we own everything, including the moon and the sun and the stars? Again, that play on that same theme of sunny day real estate itself. And even from the opening lines, pay for the sign on the hill that says you're home, pay for the hole in the ground to place your bones. Basically, from from the time you have a place to call home to the time you pass away and have to pay for that spot in the ground in the coffin to place your remains uh there's a price we pay for everything if you want to look at that idea of of paying from a metaphorical uh, standpoint or or literally the monetary costs associated with things and that ties back to the band's name sunny day real estate and what we talked about with the idea that uh, a sunny day could be monetized that a real estate company could sell more than property that they could sell the sky and a sunny day along with it in verse three it even 
spells it out even more as kind of a master-slave relationship between you and the things you own. He says, pay for the whip on your back to break, pay for the chain on your neck to control your life, pay for everything. So really making it clear that the things that we own really own us. And then musically, this song changes pretty dramatically when it gets to the chorus. It has a lot of the faster-paced stop-start throughout the verses. Those two words, pay for, get repeated over and over again. But then on the chorus, it breaks down, it gets a little bit more airy and, and a little bit more reverb on the vocals, and then the words are just, who turned the light out over and over again? Who, who turned the light out? Yeah, that part is really pretty. I love that part. Yeah, me too. And then the the music that plays behind it too, the band is really cool in that part. Yeah. Mixed with Jeremy's voice, with Jeremy's instrument. I, I really like that part a lot too. I get the impression on the chorus that that's essentially somebody that coming to the end of their life and realizing that all of those things didn't really matter. So who turned the light out is like when you pass away, it's just instantaneous and you don't even really notice it's happening and then you're like, well, where did it all go? I want to make a comment about that line, 100 million fences around us. You, you touched on that as if they were somewhat trapping us inside of fences to some degree. Is that how you put it? That's what I was interpreting that as, yeah. I read a, a comment on a, on a lyric discussion uh, from somebody on this song, and they got me thinking. They had said, although ownership is commonly seen as a freedom, here it is presented as constricting if you own property, you have a nice big home and a fence around it. It's yours. It's your property, but it also holds you in. It, it, it traps you inside your fence as well. And in a way that can restrict freedom, despite the fact that you have this possession. Yeah. The, the fences signify that it's yours. You know, you put a fence around your property, but that's like you said, essentially saying that they're, it's trapping us. I think the bigger the bigger message I, I take away from this song is whether you're paying for the things that you want in your life and and you have control over it or or somebody else is maybe charging you or or making you pay uh, for something but that that they're actually the ones who have control and maybe maybe a balance between what's real and, and artificial or what's true true personal ownership versus something superficial or under the control of somebody else uh, whether that person is readily apparent or if it's a bigger force or something less visible like like a societal pressure you know there, there's the part uh, the line pay for the mood in your mind to give a thought disguised I mentioned that earlier but didn't really elaborate on it uh, that makes me think about mood enhancers like drugs and alcohol and pharmaceuticals, they can kind of disguise your reality. Mm, interesting. So you, you you pay for that. Like if you're depressed, there's a pill for it to make you happy. So you can you can pay to be happy, and it gives you a thought, but it's 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 a disguise. It's not really who you are, and how you actually feel. It, it's kind of artificial. It's driven by the drugs, the alcohol, the pharmaceuticals, and it kind of allows you to be who you might want to be, but not who you actually are. And so in a way, like you're kind of, you're paying, you're paying for the life you want. You're paying for things like food. You're paying for the words in your mouth, the flow. You can pay for education. You can, you can pay for lessons to be a certain way for people to perceive you a certain way. 
you know, you can, you can pay for your mood, but like when it comes down to it, is that really authentic? Is that you, are you living the life that, that you, uh, would truly want to purchase for yourself or are you kind of having to pay for these things that are not like totally real or under your control? I never thought about the pay for the mood in your mind to give a thought disguised as anything related to pharmaceuticals or something that you could put in your mouth to change your mood. That's really cool. And then musically, we had talked with Greg once again about one of his favorite parts about the production on this album. And he mentioned that the bridge that we hear both in the middle of the song and then basically as an outro at the end, that on that part, they had showed up to the studio and another band had been in the studio and messed with some of the settings. And so when they turned this song on and it was filtering through those new settings, they heard Jeremy Enoch's vocals on those words, 100 million, with the echo effect Mm -hmm. that was kind of a happy accident that they ended up leaving in and it became one of their signature parts of this album. that was a really really cool thing to know things that i would have never known again i've listened to this album hundreds if not a thousand times and never knew some of the stories surrounding it like that which is pretty amazing like i was saying earlier it's almost like a a a good movie with a lot of plot twists that at the end kind of leaves you kind of scratching your head and makes you want to go back and watch it a second and third time to pick up on little details Uh, This album almost requires that because first listen through, you might be drawn to the lyrics or or the music and miss the other, or you might miss out on subtleties that you're going to pick up second or third time. But then there's also a lot of stuff that you probably wouldn't pick up on or wouldn't know. We were fortunate to have been able to talk to uh, the producer and drummer for this album, and they dropped a lot of that insight, which was really awesome. It was nice to be able to, I mean, it would have been fun to do that with any album, but one that I'm so familiar with that I thought I'd unpacked everything that I could from to hear some stories that I don't think I could have heard any other way was pretty special. Well, should we go on to the next one? Yeah, let's do it. The next song is the title track. It's called How It Feels to Be Something On. This is also the midway point of the record, so let's flip it over and start side two. If I Man, I, I really liked this song. Musically, it was it was very pleasant, great to listen to. Um, I think more than that, though, lyrically, it, it really got me thinking. I mentioned earlier, you and I were texting back and forth when I was doing my first real deep dive into this album with lyrics in front of me, headphones and, and a bottle of wine, and uh, just 
getting immersed in the music, not not distracted by anything, just really focus on trying to understand it. And with this being the title track of the album, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what it means uh, to, to be something on. And I put my thoughts down on paper because I, I wanted to make sure that, that I remembered. I want to want to read that uh, to you. So the, the phrase, how it feels to be something on, immediately makes me think about the idea that as humans, we can be on or we can be off. We can be happy, we can be sad, up or down, excited or anxious, etc., etc. The opening line in the song, if I break down all that I am, a field of wires will see what it's worth to walk. That compares the human body and experience to a machine or a network of wires and connections. If we can sort through all that makes us who we are and what we want in life, we can determine what it's worth to walk, to go forward on that journey. Sometimes that's exciting, but sometimes that's kind of scary. Sometimes life rewards us. Lines like, talk to remind, maybe of the good times. But sometimes it lets us down. Uh, Lines like, hollow peaks we've climbed. Sometimes we put in a lot of work, we climb that mountain, only to find there's not much up there, that it's kind of hollow, maybe not what we were looking for. But then lines like, if I turn around, what matters the most in time? He's clearly in a place where he's struggling to push forward, but I think he knows deep down why he should. Those experiences where we're let down might make us feel like we're going nowhere, but all in time will be. Sometimes things take a long time to develop and you can't force them. You have to weather the storm, endure some challenges along the way. Maybe you take a step back and need a break, but later on we'll try. Maybe try to climb that peak again. This time we might, another line from the song, break the lines and fill it up instead of spill it. Perhaps we will soon find what we're looking for or hoping for. Here's the underlying question in my mind. Is it the journey or the destination? Maybe it's neither. Maybe it's simply about being on. That was my my take on the song. I forgot about that text. I remember really liking that when I read it. I'm glad that you were able to pull that back up. That was probably... Do you have a timestamp on that text? <laughs> it was late. Yeah, because I remember was, uh, it being late the on wee my hours end. hours of the morning. <laughs> so it must have been... It was after midnight. Really late for I you. I know that much. But yeah. once again, just to have something that I've heard, you know, hundreds of times to think of it in a new way, your, your text made me think of it in a new way. It's funny, this is one that I really never spent a bunch of time trying to dissect. I think it was more just about the feeling to me that that phrase, how it feels to be something on, I always interpreted that as a positive thing, to be feeling like you're on just those days where you feel like your recall is good, that you really understand what life's all about, that that you just feel like you're your total self. That's to me what it felt like to be something on. And I didn't really know for sure what how this song related to that phrase. Um, I just thought of it as being a really, really pretty song. I thought it was really interesting to listen to William's interpretation of this. He mentioned that to him, that phrase, how it feels to be something on, is somebody that has a heightened feeling of being on, almost like um, they're too sensitive in an uncomfortable way. And that's something that I never interpreted, but I thought that was a really interesting feeling. I think I took it in a general sense the same way you did that that being on is a positive that some days we're just kind of off we're maybe down a little bit and uh just not firing on all cylinders and then there's those days where we're just really alive and and everything's flowing uh really well i think i 
I texted you a photo of myself when I was out on a hike. I was working out, had my weight vest on, and it was a nice sunny day. And uh, I, I really felt alive. Blood was flowing. And I think I captioned it. This is what it feels like to be something yeah. on. But William's take on the song was was really interesting. And I mean, I, I can relate uh, to that as as well. There are times where you're overloaded with stimuli. Maybe it's a number of different things that are going on. Your plate's too full and you're having to, to perform a balancing act to deal with everything. Or maybe it's one specific thing that you're overanalyzing and thinking about from every single angle possible. And it almost feels like your senses or awareness are, like you said, at a really heightened state. And it's almost it's almost too much. And so for him, this song or maybe the album in, in general, that whole idea was about learning how to, how to live with yourself when you are in that uh, situation. So how, how it feels to be something on or turned way up and and how how you survive or how you how you manage that situation yeah well said i I think this is one of those songs that's just beautiful in its construction even if you don't know exactly what it means it evokes a feeling just a longing by the narrator in this song for something and it's hard to hard for me to interpret what he's talking about although i really love your interpretation but the feeling is very clear to me it's just it's just somebody that's longing for understanding and unpacking maybe who he is. I love the the pre-chorus leading to the chorus where he says, don't tell me God the dreams I've had to fill it up but spill instead. Talk to remind days, weeks, and hours. All in time will be. Later on we'll try. All we gave to fly. Hollow peaks we've climbed. All these things I've seen. How it feels to be something on. I just think that whatever that means, I think it's gorgeous. And this is one that I was really happy to confirm what was my suspicion is that this was written originally to be a Jeremy Unix solo song. It, it just sounds like that to me. I, I could hear this on Return of the Frog Queen or one of his other solo records. Mm-hmm. And Greg had yeah. mentioned that when I asked that question in our interview. And they weren't planning on creating another album, but because they got together to create that Sub Pop Rarities album and then decided to write new material... Jeremy said, "Well, I've got I've got some songs here, and this was one of them. I would have loved to hear this as just a Jeremy Enix solo song. Although you sent me a YouTube clip of him just playing it in a house show on a keyboard. Oh and yeah, that was amazing. That was really pretty. I, I yeah. thought that was yeah, wow, really cool yeah, to that see. Was awesome. Another interesting fact musically about this song, Greg had mentioned that this was the first song that they had recorded vocally, and that Jeremy had picked." a microphone that he really loved that was actually a, this cheap Radio Shack mic. And so they recorded this song with that Radio Shack microphone. But just as they were finishing this recording, that microphone broke. And so they didn't have it for the rest of the album. So if you listen to this song and listen to any of the other ones, the vocals sound just a little bit different. It's a little bit more intimate sound. Greg described it, it sounds like Jeremy's sitting there singing to you on this song. Going back and listening to this album again, you can hear the difference in the sounds of the vocals on this song compared to the rest of them. Yeah, despite the fact that it was, I gather, a cheaper Radio Shack mic, Greg gave the impression that this is the the, the truest sound of Jeremy's voice. 
I want to go back to what we were talking about with William's interpretation of this song about somebody being too on with that heightened awareness. I think we can all come to agreement that the opposite of being on, whether you're at a a normal or good state of being on or being too on, the opposite of that would be to to be off or to be down or uh, just to to not be aware. I think that overall what we're we're talking about is there's a there's a spectrum in life of being really down, having your system pressed and not functioning very well, not not firing as it should, to being extremely on, which which I guess would be the contrast of a depressive state versus manic uh, state or being in true mania, which is a, a psychological condition. But I think it's safe to say we all we all experience ups ups and downs. We all go toward the left or toward the bottom, if you're looking at it that way, and to the right or, or to the top, um, those highs and lows to some degree. So so perhaps to be something on is to, to dial in that that right amount of of stimulus and awareness that, that you're focused and you have clarity that you're alive and well, but but not too much that it that it becomes uh, counterproductive. Yeah, that very well could be. And that ties into what Greg's interpretation was. It just felt like at the time that Sunny Day wrote this album that we're recording it, it just felt like the first time to him that they were they were on. I wanted to mention too, musically, I, I really love Williams drums on the pre chorus to this song. Yeah, I agree. This is another one that when we talked about descriptive words to describe this album, I said that some of the lyrics could be kind of sound ancient and almost scriptural or something. This song reminds me of that. Yeah, I can see that as well. That's a good transition to the next song. Should we move on to track seven? Let's do it. This one's titled The Prophet. There's one word to describe this track, I would say epic. There are so many layers to this song, so many different parts. I get this mental image of being at the end of some ancient quest and ascending this mountain peak during the buildup at the end of that song. And actually in general, I get this otherworldly vibe, especially from this one and Jeremy's lyrics. And then you throw in the the made up words to that Jeremy puts in and it does feel like these are something from like a Lord of the Rings or something, but especially this track. I thought it was really cool when we were talking to William and Greg. I, again, listened to this album so many times, I didn't pick up that that was Jeremy doing the chant, and partially maybe because you can hear him singing over top of it, and obviously I know you can overdub things, but I don't know, for some reason it just didn't strike me as being him during the chanting part, so that was cool to find out that it was his voice. Yeah, I, I like I like your visual of reaching the end of a long a long hike, and you have this mountain to summit. It does have that feel to it. Uh, I, I wrote down. I, I felt like I was sitting around a campfire on on a spiritual journey, and we were awaiting the medicine man or some 
powerful being to come come give us a, a lesson or enlighten our minds enrich our souls or just something something out of body yeah the chants and and just the way the the music was gradually building in the back it really really gave that perception some of the lines that stand out the most to me on this one well first of all that that chant repeats for several minutes at first it, at first when i heard this song i didn't know that there was going to be more to it i thought maybe it was just this long instrumental interlude with this chanting the lyrics don't start until the second half of the song and some of the words that repeat through it that really stick with me is that phrase far removed from the womb he repeats that yeah, more than once I, that. I think that's a really powerful yeah. illustration of being away from the safety and comfort of something. Which, in this song, I interpret as a positive thing. So I contrast this song with the first one in Pillars, where the narrator sounds like he's placing and stuck, walking in circles in this moment he's breaking free of those everlasting chains that bind his purpose that he mentions in pillars this is where he's throwing those away that's him pushing himself to whatever next level of his being is yeah i really gravitated toward that line far removed from the womb as well the first time we see it it's preceded by the line we'll see where we stand the second time and the taste of truth far removed from the womb and then it goes on to say, will you carry me across the sea? Will you carry me? Rhythm in mind, don't waste no time. Want to let it all out. When the chains fall off and the walls fall down, when we break the seal and our hearts pour out, when the frozen ground comes alive around us with a scream. that idea of of being away from from the womb and everything that exposes you to gives me the sense that it takes a long time to discover the truth or come to being your own to to understand and there's a lot of experiences and challenges that happen along the way before you you get to that place yeah that that ending is so amazing and that was cool again in our interview to hear that that collective writing took place at least on that line Greg was mentioning that it was his idea to come up with that end, or at least the part about the frozen ground coming alive is something that he threw into the mix when they were writing these lyrics. Yeah, that's right. For this to be a collective effort, that surprised me. I I was interpreting this one as having ties to Jeremy Enoch's conversion and his faith. That phrase being born again is often something that a Christian might say. So to be removed from the womb is like being born born again and i i took that as maybe jeremy referencing his conversion oh yeah we can drink from fountains and a taste of That's truth interesting spin yeah mm-hmm. um is another one that reminded me of maybe something on the religious side i think it's is it ponce de leon that supposedly was seeking the fountain of youth and was hoping to drink from that fountain and become immortal i, I believe that that's who that was but yeah this one just has that epic quest 
and it's it felt like a sprint to the top of the mountain the way he sings all those words together that you read is so amazing yeah great song well, let's go on to track eight this song is called guitar and video games one of the fan favorites on this album Did you know this song was named the best emo song of 1998 by Loudwire? You're kidding me, really? This song? Yeah. I would not. I I would have. Guitar and video games. I would have picked one of their songs from the first album if I was going to pick any Sunny Day song for that. Well, it was specifically of the year 1998. Ah, okay. Well, even still, I don't. I don't consider this an emo album. I guess they got labeled as an emo band because of that first album, but. I would not associate that genre with this song. I don't I don't even feel like it, it has those typical vibes that you would associate with the term emo. Well, and that's because your definition of typical is what it became, you know, as a genre. Yeah, I'm thinking more of the 2000s, when, early 2000s yeah, emo. When people were first saying the word emo before it was a common phrase that you'd hear as a description of a genre, it was like a very small movement and it probably was only like a actually a cool term to say for like 15 minutes before it got taken over and bands like you know <laughs> yeah. panic at the disco and stuff were creating whatever versions of it that defined the genre itself but yeah we talked about that on the interview episode too that it's kind of ironic to have a specific genre called emo which is short for emotional when all music stems from emotion right. so it doesn't really make sense but it is what it is in contrast to some of the cryptic lyrics, it was interesting to hear that this one actually is about guitar and video games. I guess they were somewhere on the East Coast in a, I guess Sub Pop has like a East Coast house or something like that, and they were playing video games. And I guess Jeremy sometimes just makes up lyrics on the spot and sings little things, and they were kind of writing this song as they were goofing off as a group. And I think like Roses and Water, maybe there's some deeper meaning underneath it all but at least the title itself came out of literally sitting around playing guitar and video games i want to get into that deeper meaning uh, a little bit because i gravitated toward a couple lines or at least touch on uh something it might mean more than simply sitting around playing guitar and video games there's that line what if we refuse to follow the rules of fashion what i took from that is that you you don't always have to do what everybody else is doing. You know, you don't have to follow the rules. You don't have to do what's in vogue all the time. Even if that's as simple as staying home and playing guitar and video games, that can be used as a metaphor for for a number of things. But if that's what you enjoy, if that if that's what does it for you, who cares if nobody else is doing that or if it's not in fashion, if it doesn't look cool or it's not what you're quote unquote supposed to be doing, who cares, you know, um, you don't always have to follow the rules. The deeper meaning for me on this one is I took it to be somebody that's reflecting on what it was like to be 
young, I picture like two high school kids in these coming of age years, having these intense feelings, just sitting out around in their rooms with nothing really to do with it because they don't have any freedom and they can't really go anywhere. And on the one hand, it's kind of a comical and maybe trite to think, what if we refuse to follow the rules of fashion? Like they're the first ones to ever think that, you know, like what if we rebel against society, man? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that you can look back and kind of make fun of yourself for that, but then also realize that there was something special about that time because it's what made you who you are today. That looking back and making fun of your past self for all those deep feelings would be doing yourself a disservice to your present self. My favorite line that relates to that is, all these things remade me and caused me to be something grand. So... All those little moments sitting in your room wasting time playing guitar and video games and thinking these big thoughts, they were trivial on the one hand, but they were pushing those gears forward and creating a version of who they would end up being. And when you think of it that way, it was actually an important time in their development. Yeah, very nice take on that. I like that. I even like those little words like, how is you, you feel when you run? There's a lot wrapped up in that little phrase that to me is like, teenage angst just saying like what gives you that intense feeling how do you feel when you run how do you feel when you let yourself go Mm -hmm. and then the whole thing is it's a story a tale writing itself as we sail it's a commentary on how every chapter of our lives in some way writes itself with or without our involvement yeah that maybe circles back to a, a previous song that was that was talking about control or our lack of control a feather blowing in the wind Every Shining Time You Arrive, track three. Yeah, yeah. right, yep. There's that, that, that same idea uh, that either we're, we're insignificant or there's other outside forces controlling the, the story, the tale. It's writing itself. Yeah, exactly. Especially as, as kids, like you mentioned, it's a pretty important time in your life when you know, experiencing a lot of things for the first time and a lot of emotions and uh, energy running high and sometimes confused and not really sure of who you are and what you're doing and where you're going and all that stuff. And, and, uh, sometimes it's like the, the story is just playing out and you're, you're kind of there to live it. And, and, um, back to my take on it with not trying to keep up with appearances or do what society says sometimes maybe instead of getting caught up in that, that race, having to, to run, you know, how, how you feel when you have to run, you mentioned that, that simple line, Maybe that's why sometimes it's nice just to get lost in your room playing guitar and video games and block out all that other uh, difficult stuff. Do you remember times like that where you're just sitting with your friends, whatever version of it, playing guitar and video games I can relate to because I can remember doing both of those things. A lot things, of video games. But, but just those... <laughs> and playing basketball, shooting hoops. Yeah, but just those times where it's like you have all these feelings, you have all these intense thoughts you know, maybe in retrospect, they're not so deep, but at the time you really felt that they were, but it's also a time where you can't do anything about it. You know, you, you can't, maybe you can't drive yet, or even if you can, you know, you got curfew or, you know, you just, you, you can't do anything. So you've got this point where you, like they say, in every shining time you arrive, want to change everything. You know, you want to, you want to feel everything you want to experience everything, but at the same time you're 15 and you're stuck in your room playing guitar and video games. Yeah. So your only escape into that is your friends that are there with you having those same uh-huh. thoughts. At that point in your life, you really you really don't have any physical control. Right. 
over over a lot of things. Well, I mean, you do over some, but you're under your your parents' supervision. You're under their their rules, and if you're not 16 yet, like you said, you can't drive. So you might want to go do a bunch of things that you physically can't do. But then emotionally, a lot of things are beyond your maturity level. So you don't really know how to handle that either. So perhaps that's why kids get wrapped up in various pastimes uh, like video games that um, in that reality, they can control the outcome and they, they actually are in charge of, of what's happening there. So it's, it's a distraction and it's also maybe an outlet for them to obtain that control that they wish they had in their, their regular life. And again, this, this interpretation might be completely my own, but I, I think if you look at it that way, he does a really good job of just capturing that moment of two people playing guitar and video games in the room, but also that bigger picture of just that coming of age. And I can put myself back in that so I can relate to this song. Yeah, me too. Musically, I really like Will's drumming again on this song. those fills and transitions this is a really dynamic song it it starts off really slow i think it's another one that greg had mentioned maybe had been written as a possible enix solo song but it sure doesn't sound like Mm, that when it gets to the chorus part well should we move on to track nine yeah yeah, I was just about to ask if you had anything else on eight. Let's move on to track nine. I'm going to let you introduce this track because it's got a word in there that I'm not supposed to say. <laughs> track nine is The Shark's Own Private Fuck. Thank you. brought this song up in our interview episode i had heard that also with the collaborative approach to the lyrics that some of the titles were a collaborative approach the title of this song was written by william and i was very excited to ask him what the heck this song means he was a little dodgy on what the song was about or why he titled it that but i've got my suspicions on what this song's about i really like this song especially that that bass guitar opening line that was that was really cool uh, you know, kind of set the stage. Musically, the vocals the vocals were great. Calm for a good share of it. I really like that. Yeah, I really like the chorus to, on this one. It starts off pretty slow, but the, the chorus, the, the way you were, so disturbed, what you're worth, Jeremy just holds out the last word of each of those. William's drums are really epic in that part, and all the instruments that come back in, the chorus stands out on this one, definitely.
song is rumored to be about Nate Mendel leaving the band for Foo Fighters or or staying with Foo Fighters and not being a part of this album. I haven't confirmed this from anyone, and I was hoping that maybe we'd get that out of William when we talked to him, but diplomatically so, he probably made the right choice in not fleshing out what this is about. You could, you could tell he was trying to or thinking about telling him and then greg was like yeah william maybe you should uh hold off on talking about this that one so <laughs> yeah. we're left to our yeah, he's suspicions like, ah, gosh uh well i guess in a general sense i could probably say uh no nah, i don't know i think i'm just gonna let this one go yeah you could tell he he was looking for a way to to discuss it without getting into the details or you know yep ruffling any feathers so to speak but yeah, we just left that unsaid. He gave us pretty much nothing on this except for basically saying that the title says what it is. It, he says it, it, you can interpret what you want from that. So I'm going to follow the, that thought process and, and assume maybe this is about Nate Mendel not being a part of this album. There's that line that says, walk along an empire's path. You can interpret that as somebody chasing fame and then that that next line you said you'd come back again so i imagine at the time mm-hmm. that he joined foo fighters there were words and you know william was a part of this at the same time but i, I imagine both of them were saying to the rest of them you know don't don't worry this is i'm i'm still a part of this band sure. too yeah and there's other lines as well that would fit right into that narrative i don't know if i'm interpreting them that way because i know that rumored backstory to the song but when you read lines like but you talk to yourself believing the fear that drives your greed you know the fear of not being good enough or wanting more being greedy that a band member could be talking themselves out of that situation and and feeling like they're longing for something more that they need to move up or be better or different or go out on their own or whatever it may be that they're not fully content that would lead to somebody seeking something else or getting wrapped up into that. And then when you discover the empty place, a hollow world of instant pleasures, things may look good on the surface, give you instant gratification, but they sometimes can leave you feeling a little empty as well. So maybe that was kind of a a jab at, you know, being a part of uh, more superficial or not as real or genuine of a, a project for the instant pleasure or gratification that you get with it, but that it might not be all that it is cracked up to be, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that line with a diamond eye you gaze, maybe that's like an eye on wealth or something materialistic. Yeah. Yeah, that too. There's another line, try to smile as they devour our youth. I wasn't quite sure if that was uh, another band, you know, potentially the Foo Fighters, having a direct impact on Sunny Day Real Estate by breaking up what they had, you know, forcing them to grow up and accept the pressures of the music industry and the fact that these things happen in a way like destroying their youth, the uh, the innocence and the, the connectedness that they had, you know, or if maybe they was referring to the music industry and that general tendency or pressure for people to switch bands or chase a bigger prize or move up or do something new or different, or chase fame. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of it, the they as being the music industry. I thought of it the way that you described it as they as the Foo Fighters. It's like they take you away from us, you know, like we were we were just kids mm. playing and now 
they're devouring that right. innocence yeah. that that was the art that we were trying to create because you know there, it was it was different and like we talked right. about that was one of the things that was really hard for William with the Foo Fighters is he's leaving a band that or at least at the time taking a hiatus from a band that was a truly collaborative approach I mean down to like the words they're all sitting in a room coming up with the sound and yeah. and all the fills and all of the signature lines that he does on the drums are all his going to play with Foo Fighters where everything was really mapped out and spelled out and the producer for The Color and the Shape, the album that William was playing drums to be on was Gil Norton and he's known for being very almost like uh, like insulting you to make you better kind of thing. We both picked up on the fact that William's a real sensitive guy. I think it allows him to feel as much as he does and create amazing art, but I think it's probably pretty hard when you're used to having all that control to then basically be told, no, you have to do it exactly this way, and you're not doing it good enough, and the lead singer of this band was the best drummer in the world for Nirvana, and, you know, who am I to question that? And maybe not so much control, but maybe just more purpose or, you know, the, the individuality and ownership in the music you know like you mentioned if you're somebody who's sensitive and and you feel and you have emotions and you really have a heightened awareness of of your environment your surroundings and you value that interpersonal experience and and um you know all, all the all the deeper components underneath the surface to the making of music if you know if that's what makes you tick if that's why you enjoy it what gets you up what gets you to go to practice for three hours because you love it. And now all of a sudden that's just stripped away and you're, you're shown this completely new method or way of going about things as you were describing where things were a little bit more scripted and planned out. And it's like, okay, here's this music. We need you to play it. We need you to play it this way. It's probably forced. It seems more like a job. It kind of takes the fun out of it. Yeah. Creatively malnourished, I think is how William described Yeah, I think that. so. Yeah. So to be yeah. able to, make how it feels to be something on after having gone through all that, I think was probably very cathartic for him. Mm -hmm. In fairness, I think as we rip the lyrics apart to this one and apply it all to Nate, I think it's worth mentioning that Nate Mendel did come back, I think I might have mentioned before, for, I believe he played on the Fire Theft album as well. So he was a part of Sunday Day Real Estate going forward. But at the time, yeah, I can see this hitting a nerve for the band as a whole and maybe William particularly having yeah, just been sure. yeah. through that. Especially at a younger age. I mean, who, who knows how they all feel about it now? I mean, uh, in retrospect, we look back on some things later on in life and we might see it in a different perspective. You know, it's, it's, it's hard saying. Well, whatever this song is about, they, they got a really cool song out of it. This, this happens to be one of my favorites on the album as well. And it was kind of a grower for me. This one probably became one of my favorites in the in the last five or six years. So this album continues to be alive for me when I listen to it over and over again. I take something new from it. And with our deep dive this time, this is one that stood out once again as one of my favorites. Well, man, we're down to one final track. We're on the last track, we're on track 10. This one's titled, The Days Were Golden. This 
song once again was really fun to listen to after our interview episode hearing this song so many times throughout my youth and growing up i didn't know some of the things that greg had mentioned about his production on here but they stand out a lot once you listen for them first one was them talking about that effect they put on william's drum that gave it a little bit more of a metallic-y sound that's very evident on this song and then once again doubling Jeremy's vocals you can hear on the chorus that really stands out as well and both of those things I appreciated a lot more after talking to Greg back to those cryptic lyrics do you have any idea on this song oh I don't know as a whole I can probably break down certain sections that first part the days were golden we were known to be, we won't escape this memory, possibly reflecting or hanging on to some good times from the past. Yeah, cryptic's a good word for him. I don't think it's very clear. Any ideas? This is one that I've had a hard time unpacking. What stands out the most to me is the contrast between the two bridges. So the first one he says, oil to believe when you raise an iron hand this place without a song for all, the words just crawl. And then on the second bridge, he says, all to be free raise an open hand this place without a wall words just grow So every single part of those two bridges contrasts each other. It says when you raise an iron hand, that's like maybe something oppressive or closed versus raising an open hand, this place without a song for all, and as opposed to that, it's a place without a wall, so it's more of a positive. Instead of the words crawling, the words are growing. So the contrast between those two bridges stood out lyrically, but I don't know what to make of them. Yeah, like you said, it's a lot to unpack. It's not very clear maybe this is one we'll have to text william and greg and get some answers on typical of a lot of songs on sunny days discography this is uh one that's not explicitly written so maybe some of the other ones we could read interpretations into and this one is open and doesn't speak to me specifically on anything personal so it's harder for me to attach personal meaning to it but i do love the sound of it i love all the production elements that greg did and it's a cool ending to this album I'd agree. Musically, it fits as the last song of the album. I asked you earlier, kind of jokingly, because I mean, at least I couldn't come up with with one. But I asked you if this is a concept album, because we've we've reviewed quite a few concept albums where there were unifying themes or or a story, some sort of chronology to the songs and the messages that are being told. Maybe if we had all those details and backstories, we could make some inferences on, on this one. But to me, it seems like there's there's some common 
themes about interpreting life and the world around you, the ups and downs from some dark times to, to, to getting out of that and potentially some, some optimism or light or hope. But overall, the, the lyrics are not very straightforward except for a few songs. We have some background info or rumors on on a couple that put us down a certain direction but a, a lot of the a lot of the songs are fairly abstract the lyrics don't necessarily drive the song which is a unique element of this album you know we, we've mentioned a couple of times now it's not not one for all occasions it's probably something that should be listened to when you're not doing anything else with with headphones and without distractions because that really allows you to to dive in and appreciate it fully to to really hear the sounds and and catch all the the lyrics and subtleties and and uh make yourself think or question and try to interpret them or or put some sort of meaning or context to your experience with the music that's what it did for me i'm really glad you you picked this album and you've exposed me to these guys and their their work it has a good place in the the understanding of how how different genres evolved over the years. I think these guys were groundbreakers to to some degree in some sense. You know, it's really cool. They they stayed true to their music. They stayed true to their sound. Uh, didn't really try to impress or appease anybody. Seemed like they were genuinely wrapped up in the process of making music and being guided by by the sound and the interconnectedness of all the members and and the the instruments. They were just making music i think as william said they were just making songs and and putting it together and it it, you know it is what it is it sort of had its own organic uh formation so i really appreciate that yeah well said i think that's one of the things that's endured the most for me about this band whatever that term emo means or what it's morphed to mean over the years this feels authentic to me if there's one word that i would use to describe sunny day real estate i think authenticity stands up more than anything else and is it emo is it rock is it progressive you know i don't know but what i do know is that it gives me an emotional feel i think it's one of the things that's made it stand the test of time for me there's a lot of music that I might have listened to during this time that I might cringe a little bit at the emotion or contrived emotion that they were creating at the time. But when I listen to this, it feels real, it feels raw, it feels authentic. And that's one of the things that's endured this album and this band to me over the years. And I've had so much fun revisiting this album with you as an adult. My initial impressions, of course, are that of a 15-year-old laying on the carpet of his room with a lyric sheet likely sprawled out on the floor, speakers turned up to 11. But to hear your impressions as a guy in his 30s for the first time has given it new life for me. And so fittingly, I think this might be a good time to mention, in the spirit of new life, I found out I'm going to be a father. Oh, wow. I'm excited to announce that my wife's about four months pregnant with... A baby boy. Congratulations. So cool, man. That's good to hear. What's a, what's a proper age to introduce a child to Sunny Day Real Estate? <laughs> well, the parenting books would probably tell you to wait a little while, but my poor kid, I've already got the headphones on her stomach, so the music lessons are kind of starting right now. <laughs> got the baby onesies already with the record player on it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's my kid, so he doesn't have a shot, I think. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that's cool to get to, uh, well, I mean, all the things you get to do with a child, but to, to take him through your musical past and expose and kind of shape his understanding of music and sound over the years, that'll be cool. Yeah, it will be. And truth be told, I'm just excited 
for all the parts of being a dad and of course scared out of my mind at the same time but we're just excited that we have a healthy baby on the way I know you know it's been a tough road for us in some ways so to have this looking really good on the horizon here is so exciting and we feel really blessed awesome well congrats again man that's really cool thank you and thank you so much for revisiting this album with me it's been so interesting to listen to it with somebody who's hearing it for the first time with a fresh set of ears like i said it's given an album new life for me that i've been listening to my whole life yeah man and thank you again for exposing me to this band and showing me how it feels to be something on (laughs) all right we'll end with that on that note thanks for joining us and until next time go listen to a great album peace If you're enjoying listening to Album Divers, you can support our podcast by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music. Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.